The last time I spoke, I started a series in the middle of Romans, which I would consider and I would say most people would consider the very heart of the gospel. This is the passage that if you were to put your attention here and study this to where you could understand this passage, I believe you would understand the gospel. And if you understood the gospel, you would understand the Bible because the Bible is centered on the gospel. That's the purpose of the Bible is that God to us has to tell us what we otherwise would not know. And that is that we could be right with him and uh, accepted by him because, uh, because otherwise there is no hope for us. So this is starting in verse 21. I'll read down to verse 27, but only, uh, only speak on verse 21 today. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remissions of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It's excluded. By what law? Works? No, but by the law of faith. So we looked at last time that now something is different. Something is different now in the world. And the thing that's the same in the world is that God is righteous. And that doesn't even mean much to people. We don't use the word. It's not something that we would use so that we know it absolutely inside and out. Righteous is kind of a bible word. We know that it means good, or we know that it means that we're doing right. And the fact the word righteous and the word right really is the same. It has this idea with, believe it or not, means straight. So imagine that if you had a shape. Let's say that you had, I don't know, some Christmas ornaments that are all the same. And you could line them all up so that one exactly lays over the other and they're perfectly the same. If it's a star, all the stars are the same and you can lay them on top of each other and they're exactly the same as the the stars. Every angle is the same. The sizes are the same. In some strange way, that's the closest idea to righteousness that there is. Now, we don't use that word righteous when you're in geometry class. You don't say that an angle is righteous to another. But it really has this idea to be in perfect conformity, perfect exactly to something else. When we say that the, that the, that the Lord God is righteous, I would say that is one of the key messages of the Bible. Because it's something that you would have to be told. It's not something you necessarily know. I think if you were to look out the, the window and see the, the hills and see the streams and see the beauty of this world, see the stars, there would be enough in that to prove that there is a God. In fact, Paul makes that as his argument when he begins this book in Romans, that just the proof of creation is enough to damn someone. It is enough that, that even if that's all that they would ever know is that there is a hand And I can look at my hand, 
And that is enough to realize that there's a God. There is no explanation for your hand. There is no explanation for your eyes and how they work. There's none at all, except there's a God. So God has shown himself powerful and shown himself creative. But he would have to tell us that he's righteous. And then he would have to tell us enough times to where that actually clicked and we understood what it meant. So how do I say that God acts like God? If God is righteous, it means he lines up exactly with who God is. Well, that's almost silly. Of course God's acting like God because God's God. But if I think about it, I don't act like myself. I don't act like the way I would want to present myself. I don't act like my values. I don't act, I'm consistently inconsistent. Every single time I want to act a certain way, but I don't. You've seen my sin. I don't want to be a sinner. You've seen my inabilities. I don't want to be, I don't want to be disabled in any way. I want, I want to do right, but I can't. God is different from me. God is free, perfectly free to do anything he pleases. And he is always in conformity perfectly to his own character. So we saw that the Bible's main purpose is to show us that God is righteous, that he's always righteous. And part of his righteousness is that he will promote his righteousness. Whoever God is, whatever God's character is, part of what it means for God to be righteous is that he promotes that. He insists upon it. And the scary thing for us and the scary thing for everyone we know is that because God is righteous, One of the things that he does to promote that righteousness is that he gave law to man. Now, law will strangle you. You cannot hide in the law. You can't say, I'm going to do right. I'm I'm going to obey myself into being right, and God will like me because I'm doing right. That's a very frightening thing because the law is just like God. If you line up the angles of the law, it overlaps God flawlessly. There is nothing that the law says that God is not. It's perfectly the same. So when God says, this is my standard, my standard is myself, and you will be judged against that standard, suddenly now the smile comes away from my face because it's not just a matter that you have to be better than me, which is not hard. It's that I must be the same as God. If for me to be accepted by God, I must be as good as God. And that's a very frightening thing. And all have sinned, this this scripture is going to go on to say, and have fallen short of God's glory. In no way do we line up with God. We don't. And so the law, lots of people think, is how I get right with God. If I could perfectly obey the law, then I would be just like the law. I would be lined up with the law. All my angles would line up perfectly. And the law's angles perfectly line up with God, I would be just like God. If I could obey the law, I would be just like God. Now, do you see my foolishness when somehow I think that God will accept me because I did something? God will accept me because I did something. I did something or didn't do something. Okay? Every day that I let the kids get on the school bus and not kill them before they get on, I think that I've done a great service to humanity. Okay? I think that you should pay me extra because I did not kill anybody today. That's not the standard. My standard is that I must be like God. And so in some ways, at the beginning, this passage starts, but now the righteousness 
without the law is manifested, right? So that means that, that I now am not right with God only by keeping the law, which would just be fantasy. Now, Jesus Christ, we're going to see, keeps the law perfectly. He earned his salvation. We're given our salvation. And when we think of Christmas as a, as a time of gift-giving, you wonder why. Why would we give gifts? Why do we show love through gift-giving? It's because what Christmas represents is that God gave to us what we could not have for ourselves. We couldn't be for ourselves. So we don't want a righteousness that's by the law because all that does is prove that I'm unrighteous. So God, through Christ, born in a barn, in an obscure family, to a seemingly illegitimate mother, in a poverty-stricken, overtaken country that was ruled by by a foreign government. This is what God did to break into this world. And it says here that the righteousness of God that had nothing to do with obedience has been manifested. Now, I know what the word manifest means. I've seen it. It just means show up. Like if it's manifested, it it shows up. But manifest is a really strong word because it's made out of two words. Man mean, mana means hand, like to manipulate something. You manipulate with your hand. So manifest means to get hit with someone's hand. So if something is manifest, it is so obvious that it's like someone slugging you in the jaw. You don't miss it. It's not like something that you overlook. It's not something of, oh, yeah, that was true. You mean God gave me a righteousness that had nothing to do with obedience? When God sent Christ... It was a seriously in-your-face thing, okay? And it was something that changes everything because this whole sentence starts, but now. Something was true of me. I was not right with God. I was unacceptable, and I was hell-bound. But now, the righteousness that God expects of me because I'm his creature, because he's righteous and he promotes his own righteousness, means that it can come to me having nothing to do with me obeying. Because if if I said, as long as you keep the law, you can be like God and you will go to heaven, there is no gospel there. There is no reason to have a, a meeting house. There is no reason to assemble. All I'm doing is saying, get ready to go to hell, get your house in order, your life will be over soon, you can count your breaths in dozens. Some people's breaths this day will be over in dozens of breaths that you could count on two hands. Today, what an awful thing to to die the the week of Christmas. It happens in all countries, in every society, in so many families. And you think, why would God do that? It's so important. Christmas is not important. Jesus coming to earth is important because he is the righteousness that God gave us, that we can be right with God. And the next passage says... But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So I just want to show that the entire life of Christ was witnessed by the law and the prophets. The law is the first five books of the Bible. That's what is called the law. All right, so Genesis through Deuteronomy, those books. It contains the law of Moses, but it contains... All the stories of creation, it, it, it talks about the patriarch, or it talks about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. 
and their sons and what went on at the very beginning. It talks about how God created this world in such a creative and powerful uh, act. He spoke it into existence. So all of this is in the law. And the law manifests or witnesses the fact that Jesus was coming. The Jesus who God expected you to be righteous, this is what the law said was coming. And the prophets, that all the prophets were showing that Christ was coming because God loves us and he would not love us by saying, be good and I'll take you to heaven if he knows that not one of us will be good. That would be cruelty. There would be no loving God if God said, if you will be good and you'll be some of the good people and not the bad people, and you do the good things and not the bad things, then I'll love you. There is no gospel, and that is not a loving God. But God is so big that he can take those of us who are not righteous and not obedient, not faithful, and bring us all the way to glory and be accepted in his sight, perfect, because Christ was that powerful. He is that good on our behalf. When Jesus means Savior, it means Savior. That's what it means. To have a Savior is better than to be good. I would rather be a Brian with a past so foul and awful that it brings my face to hot than to be Adam before he fell. I am better with the Savior than if I were clean, clean, clean. Because I have what God calls righteousness. Adam was a created man who before he fell had no sin, but he did not line up. His angles did not line up to God. You could put Adam over God and people would laugh at the thought that Adam would overlay God and flawlessly match. But every wicked person in this room who has been forgiven by a strong Savior who was born on Christmas matches God. In God's eyes, you match. And that is power. And that's worth of our great praise and living a Christmas day every day. It's wonderful that when you show love like God shows love, that we can somehow imitate God in a very faulting Bambi legs kind of way. I think it's wonderful. And I don't despise people for giving gifts on Christmas. You know what it's become, and you know how silly it is. It was silly when your grandparents were here. It's not not just become silly. It has always been ridiculous. But what's behind it can still cause worship because God gave what we did not have but must have. So when it says today we're going to look at witnessed by the law and the prophets, I'm only going to show a few. The Bible has hundreds, hundreds of prophecies that showed Christ perfectly coming in every regard of his, of his person, who he was, what he was like, what he would do, because the entire Bible is centered on the gospel. It's not centered on be good and I'll love you. It's not centered on good people do good things and bad people do bad things. I promise you we are bad people. And I promise you that there are good people that will go to hell. And bad people who are saved by a Savior will not. There is no boasting then. Did you hear it? 
Where is boasting? It's excluded. There is nothing that we have to brag about, but that God is great and that he loves us and gave us a Savior. And we receive that Savior with faith. So let's look first. I'm only giving you a few. When I say hundreds, I do mean hundreds. And I'm only giving you just a few. The first thing I wrote down is the Messiah would be born of a virgin. You're going to have to get out your Bibles. Sword drills. We've been doing sword drills with the girls. Because, every, they, because they use their iPads like all people in the 21st century. And nobody knows where the bu- books of the Bible are anymore. Because it's just on my phone. I just push that button and it, all, it pops right up in front of me. I'm the same way. I told the girls, I said, I'm losing it. I could, I could usually find a verse in two seconds. Now I'm like, mmm, because it's, that's just what we are. But I want you to, to go to Isaiah chapter 7. And what we're going to see is that what, was, what the law, which is the first five books, plus the prophets, said, then the writers of the Gospels were very careful to say, this is why I'm telling you this. Because the prophets told you that it was going to happen. Now I'm telling you that it happened. All right? So the Messiah would be born of a virgin. Now, by the way, the word virgin is common. There's six times in the Old Testament it's used. It's the same word used each time. And it truly means virgin. There's no kind of weird, you don't kind of hold your tongue a certain way and make it think something else. It means what you think it means. It means a woman who never knew a man. That's the word virgin, and that's how it's used, and that's what it means. Isaiah 7, 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. So when you look at the names of Christ, it didn't say you shall call his name Jesus Christ, that everybody knows. Jesus just means Joshua or Yeshua, which just means God will save. That's what it means. It's a Hebrew word. Thousands and thousands of people had that name. This name was the idea of the concept of this person. This person is not just God will save us, which he will, but he is God with us. That God himself is going to be born. This is what the prophets, and I don't even know, Isaiah was a godly man. I don't know that Isaiah fully understood that. I I don't know. I don't expect that he did. He knew what he was to write, but to know it in full means that you have to see it, and, and I don't know that it was even possible. In, in fact, it, Peter, later in the, in the New Testament, says these are things that the, that the angels would love to look into. These are things the prophets would have loved to been able to see because they wrote what they wrote, but they were in many ways clueless to what it meant because they were, it was too big for their brains. So Matthew 1, at the end of chapter 1, says this in verse 21. And he shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. So this was, this was given to Joseph. This is, this is the words written to Joseph when Joseph is like, I don't want Mary to be hauled off into the street and stoned until she dies. I'll just take the shame. I, I can endure it. I can, I can be laughed at. I'm okay with it. I love her too much. I don't know why she did this to me. I thought she was something else. But then the angel said, no, 
You don't have to worry about it. This is a holy child, and you'll call his name Jesus because this is what the prophet said. Now, Joseph was like, are you serious? I'm going to raise the Son of God. Wow. You can't even imagine. What does that mean? I would have fainted. It's a good thing he was asleep. Next thing I wrote down, Messiah would be a descendant of Abraham. Okay? So if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, at the very beginning of the chapter, this is what it says. Now the Lord said to Abram, this is before he was even Abraham, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and thy father's house into a land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless thee and make thy name great, and, sh- and thou shalt be a blessing. Okay? Uh, I will bless thee that bless them and curse thee that curse thee, and, thee sh- and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now, Abram was, a, was an idolater from, the, from probably Iraq or Iran somewhere. He was an idol worshiper, and his whole family was, and God pulled him, and he simply obeyed God. God said something was true, and he simply took it as truth. And God called that righteousness. He said, trusting me is the same as being right. Trusting me is the same as being as good as me. Because you can't be as good as me. Your angle's never lined up. So you are going to be right simply because I'm right, and you're trusting me for something. And so for that reason, you will be a blessing. No, it doesn't say you'll be a blessing. In thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. In thee. Now go down to verse 7. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, Unto thy seed I'll give the land, and there builded he an altar uh, who uh, appeared to him. Unto thy seed. Okay? Now some of the translations say descendants because that makes sense. That's what seed means. It's prodigy. But it's a singular word. Seed is not seeds. And Paul takes that and said, he's not talking about all the descendants of Abraham. He's not talking about the Jewish people being a blessing to the world. He's talking about one descendant of Abraham that will be a blessing to the whole world. This is in Galatians chapter 3. This is Paul writing. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. And he saith not unto seeds, which are many, but as of one and to thy seed, which is Christ. So what God was promising is you're going to have a descendant that I am going to use to bless the whole world, and it will be your descendant. The friend of God, Abraham the idol worshiper, the friend of God became the great-great-grandfather of the Lord Jesus because it's like the faith of Abraham. Your faith is like the faith of Abraham. Abraham simply took God at his word, and it was counted to him as righteousness. We simply trust what God said, and it's counted the same as if we were right with God. And your descendant, one of the blessings that I'm going to bless you with, is your descendant will be the Savior of the world. He then has another son, because he kind of races God to, God must mean that I must sleep with my maid. I don't know how that, that that occurred to Abraham. That must be what I must do. But Ishmael was born... But it was not to come through Ishmael. Several times, it was through thy son Isaac that that the promise will come. And it was Abraham's faith then, when God asked him to sacrifice Isaac, he knew that the Savior of the world was coming through Isaac. And and the book of Hebrews said his faith was, why he was so commended, was even if Isaac dies, 
God will have to raise him from the dead because he promised that the son would come through Isaac. And if Isaac's dead, he must be risen again because it was through that man. That's what, that's what trusting God means. When it does not make sense, God must be right. That's trusting him. And, through, and so his sons, 12 sons, were given the law. They were given the oracles of God. God showed themselves to him in a great way. And it was through that that people will know God. It was through that law that was just like God. The angles were just like God. Now we can't get to God through the law, but the law drives us to Christ because the law shows us that we're not like God and that we need a Savior, and that is its purpose. The next thing I wrote down is that Messiah would come through Judah. Now, Judah is one of the sons of Isaac. Isaac's name is turned to Israel later. And the 12 sons of Israel, the fourth one is is Judah. Not the first, not the second, not the third. Judah is the first. And Judah was promised to be the king. Okay? This is Genesis 49, verse 10. The scepter shall not depart out of Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Okay? The king of the Jews will be from Judah. In fact, the word Jews comes from the word Judah. We get the, the Hebrews is not the word Jew. The word Jew comes from the word Judah. The son of, of Isaac was a Jew. All the other sons of Isaac were a Jew. But the king came from Judah, and so all the people were named after the king. So Judah was not the king, but his sons later would be the king. So we, need, we know that Jesus must be of the house of Judah. This is from Luke 3, verse 33. This is one of Mary's begats. Remember the begat section? Uh, you've got a begat section in Matthew, which is the, is the lineage of Joseph. And then in Luke is the lineage of Mary. And we see in verse 33, which was the son of Amminadab, which was the son of Abram, which is the son of Ezram, which is the son of Pharaoh, which is the son of Judah. So Jesus... Mary's direct great-great-grandfather was Judah, the son of Isaac, okay? Because God said, until Shiloh come. Now, that's really interesting. The word Shiloh just means the one who deserves it, the one, the one, who, the one who merits it, the one, who, the one who has earned it, okay? The one that has pleased God by his earning, which none of us have. We don't, we don't meet God's demand by our obedience because we're, so, we're bad at it. But he earned it. And when the lawgiver comes, it said, until Shiloh come, all the kings will come into Judah until Shiloh comes. Shiloh is another word for Jesus. He's the one who merits it. He's the earner. He's the deserver. He's the last king and only king of Israel, the eternal king. Of Israel, still the king, which I think is just amazing. Next thing I wrote, he had to be a son of David. Now, David was the king after Saul. Saul was essentially God turned his back on him. He picked David, who was an unlikely candidate, but loved God, that he had a heart towards God, a man after his own heart. He was after his heart. The heart. David's heart was after God's heart. He chased God. That was what it's basically meaning. And he was promised something. This is 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is from 12 to 16. 
And when thy days be fulfilled and you shall sleep with your fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. Okay, so who was David's son that established the kingdom? Okay, his son, he had many sons, but his son after him was Solomon. But we see that Solomon lives, and the first day after he's dead, his son split the kingdom completely. So it's not a forever kingdom, okay? So this is continuing. I will be his father, he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I'll chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him like I took it from Saul. But will put away before thee, and thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever, and thy throne shall be established forever. Do you see, when when you read the prophets, a lot of people don't like the prophets because it's too hard. It's not so obvious because the prophets are looking into the future. And it's murky. And many times when you read prophecy, you're going to see two things lined up. You're going to see an answer to that prophecy that's immediate. And then you're going to see an ultimate answer that lines up. They might not even have seen that they're looking at two things. It's like looking at a hill and you think it's one and it's actually two because one's behind the other one. So first of all, the, the kingdom will, he will build me a house. Um, Solomon built the temple for God. David wasn't allowed to because of just how bloody of a man he was. Solomon built a house. But do you see, Christ is the one who really built the house. There's the son, there's the son of David and the ultimate son of David. So you, when he's looking at this prophecy, you actually have to stop and go, okay, it's almost like coming in and out of focus. He's talking about Solomon. Then he can't be talking about Solomon. Then he's talking about Solomon. Then he can't be talking about Solomon. So look at it. It says... I will be his father, he shall be my son. That's an absolute direct quote from Psalm 110. Sit thou until I make your enemies your footstool. This is God speaking to Jesus. I, will, I am your father, you shall be my son. Then it can't be talking about Jesus. It's back to Solomon. If he committed iniquity, I'll chase him with the rod of men, with the stripes of children of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul. So two sinners... But Solomon, I'm going to, to be merciful to. Saul, I took it away. I cast him out. And then it says, and thine house and kingdom shall be established forever. Well, he lost the kingdom in one generation. So it couldn't be Solomon. It's, do you see it? The eternal forever throne is Jesus' throne. Okay? It's Jesus' throne. This is, this is Luke 1, uh, 32. This is talking to Mary now. This is the angel talking to Mary. He shall be great. And he should be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father, David. So Jesus needed to be of the descendant of David. So when you go in Matthew and you see Luke's, uh, or you, you see Joseph's lineage, Joseph goes all the way back to David. Joseph would have been king of Israel. Had there been kings, if, they, if God had not allowed his people to be conquered by their enemies, Joseph would have been the king on the throne. And Jesus would have been his son. But we talked about in Sunday school, Jesus was virgin born. Because officially, he descended his inheritance through his father. But Jesus would have received the sin of Adam through Joseph. That's why that Mary was, was a virgin born. It had to be a human, but it could not be the son of a son. It was the son of a mother, and that is why it's, it's absolutely mind-blowing. 
There was a legal idea. It was the idea of officially you would have been the sin of Adam would have been on you and you would not have been sinless because you're a man. He lived as a man, as a sinless man, and that is, that is why he was a virgin-born man. But he had to inherit the throne of his father David. Mary, you see in Luke, also was descendant of David. So Jesus was doubly descended from David directly. So Joseph had to pay taxes in Bethlehem because that was David's hometown. So that's the next thing I thought. He had to be born in Bethlehem. Okay, so when the wise men came to the king, the king was like, where's the Messiah going to be born? Suddenly I'm in, I'm in trouble. We're in, this is crisis. And the, they, they went to Micah chapter 5. This is verse 2. But thou, Bethlehem, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you be little among the thousands of Judah, yet be out of thee shall come forth unto me the ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. So here is Judah. This is the land of Judah. And one of the towns in Judah was the hometown of David, who was from Judah. And his hometown is the one that the prince will be born in. And it said, whose goings have been from old and everlasting. There's not a Jew in the Old Testament would not have scratched their head at that. The prince that will be born in you, you little uh, podunk town, will have been eternally from ever, forever and ever in existence. The one who will be born is from everlasting. There is, no, there is only one from everlasting to everlasting, and that's God himself. The Bible is not that obscure. It's saying God himself, God with us, will be born in you, little town of Bethlehem, who didn't know straight up and slept while he was born. born. Not a one of you even paid attention. You slept at all. And we just read in Matthew this morning in, in Sunday school that that's exactly where he was born. And that's where Herod went to kill the kids. And you see that that was prophesied too. I'll, I'll not do that one this morning. That was prophesied in Jeremiah. And that that uh, the sound was heard in Ramah, a voice of shattering, uh, fa- shattering heartbreak and, 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 uh, and fury because all the children are dead. And you see, remember the prophets, when they're prophesying, can look ahead and say, Oh, he's talking about Babylon. Babylon is going to come and destroy the cities and all the children are going to be dead and it'll be the most horrible thing that's ever happened, which did in fact happen. But in that same town, Rachel, by the way, Rachel was Isaac's, uh, or, uh, Isaac's wife, was, born, was died in Bethlehem. Her tomb was in Bethlehem. And so that's why Ephratah was named. And in Rachel was heard the sound of mourning. So all of it that depicts his birth, all of it, was for, from old, 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 1,000 years, 800 years, 600 years before Jesus ever came. God set you up because this says that a, that a righteousness came not about law, not being obedient, but according to the law and the prophets. So I just stopped there. I'm not going to tell you that the, the, gospel, the gospel of him preaching with power with the Holy Spirit was also foreseen that he was going to be a stumbling block to the Jews, that he was going to be rejected by the religious leaders, that he was going to be betrayed by his own friend, that he was going to be sold for 30 pieces of silver, and then that silver was buying the potter's field. All of this was in detail described because God's Bible is about the gospel, and the gospel is Jesus coming. 
That's the whole gospel. There is no gospel in being good. There is no gospel in being better than your neighbors. There is no gospel there. It is no salvation in our works. There is only trusting the Lord as, as Abraham trusted, simply saying, I take you for what you said. And you said that you provided a, a righteousness that you can be right before God. Righteousness. There is no salvation for you. You will live your nights, you will kiss your grandchildren, and you will go to the dust, and you will go to hell. If you are trusting in anything, but if you are trusting in the Christ that was given because we do not have what we need, then you have salvation. And you will live in your nice house or your poor house. You will live in, with plenty or with want. You will be friendless or full of love. Then you will go to the dust and you will go to paradise. Because it's not about us. It's about God. Glory to God. Praise to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. Let's pray. Oh, great God, we love you. We love your son. We love what you've done. Give us your grace that we may be totally, fully devoted to you, that we may reject our sins, which have done nothing but strangle us and and choke us. May we reject our self-righteousness that makes us think that we're better than anyone. We are not. We must be saved. We must be saved. Thank you for providing a Savior. Holy Spirit of God, we ask that you would have full, total sway in every heart, that those who who have fooled themselves for decades would come in in absolute contrition to you and be rescued forever. And for those who have trusted you, give them great joy because we are bombarded. This is a hard life. This life is hard. It's short and hard. And we need you. We thank you that you have promised us everything, that all things have been promised us because of our Savior, that you have given us all things. We want to to make our lives... um, a thank you card for you. We want to give you a Christmas card of our life. And we do want to obey your law. We do want to love our neighbors. We do want to be like you. We want to love as you love. And we're totally enabled unless the Holy Spirit who moved in when we trust the Lord into us would enable us. Please let us not get in his way. Let this church grow is my prayer. Let this church purify Let this church be a beacon in this dark town. And we thank you that um, you are a light that all men um, cannot uh, put out. And that you've chosen to put it here, and we thank you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this day. In Jesus' name, amen.